If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 44th chapter of the book of Isaiah as we continue our study through the Word. Now, you will remember that Isaiah had told the nation that they were going to be going into captivity, that the Assyrians were not going to harm them, but that they would go into captivity to the Babylonians. But here we see in the second half of Isaiah, we see that this is the encouragement where, yes, they were going to be taken out of the land, but they are going to be brought back into the land. And, and that Israel is God's chosen people, his servant. And and so we are going to continue to see the incredible encouragement that God gives to his people. And remembering the timeline, this prior to their captivity in Babylon. In the 44th chapter, at the end of this chapter, we are going to see one of the most amazing prophecies, specific prophecies uh, in the Word of God. And that is the reference to Cyrus the Great and how Cyrus the Great is going to be used as an instrument uh, of God to have his people be returned back to the, the nation, back to the land, and to rebuild the temple once again. And, and so, almost uh, 200 years before Cyrus is on the scene, we have this prophecy telling the nation that they're going to go into captivity, not by Assyria, Assyria was the, the current threat, but by the Babylonians, which had not even risen to power. And then he declares that he is going to place them back into the land through Cyrus, uh, who is the Persian. This is the Medo-Persian Empire that is going to defeat the Babylonian Empire. And, and so we see hundreds of years ahead of time, specific name, nations, and how they are going to rise and fall underneath the direction of God. And so amazing, amazing prophecy here in Isaiah's chapter 44 and 45. So let's begin here in verse 1. And we see that it says, Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now, once again, he begins with this exhortation to, to listen to this word of encouragement. And look at the, the terms that he uses for Israel. He uses Jacob. Jacob, my servant. And so personal name referring to the nation itself. And then he uses the term Jeshurun. Jeshurun is a, a, a poetic synonym for Israel, and it technically means the, the upright one. And so it's used here and also in the book of Deuteronomy, but we see these personal, intimate words that now God is using to describe the nation and his people. They are going to be judged and set out of the land. They broke the covenant. God said that if you would keep my covenant, then you will stay in the land. But that if you 
take and break my covenant that, that I will cast you out of the land. And, and so the idolatry had reached a point now to where God was bringing judgment to, upon the nation. They would spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon. But God was just chastising the nation. He wasn't destroying the nation. He hadn't forgotten about the nation and he wasn't casting them off. And so here we see these intimate uh, names now for the, the nation and for God's people as he is telling them that, that he has a plan for them and not to be discouraged. He says in verse three, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. And I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And they will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call himself by the name of Jacob. And another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And so I will pour my spirit uh, out. We see the outpouring of this spirit takes place now on the day of Pentecost when when the Holy Spirit is poured out and and the church now is born and and the spirit is born is poured out on Jews and Gentiles notice with me it is interesting where one says I am the Lord's we see that those are Christians people who name the Lord as their personal Lord and Savior and another will call himself by the name of Jacob and so those are the Jews God's people who were the Jews and then we see that there are those who will say the Lord's, uh, another will write with his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. In that I see that those are the, the Messianic Jews uh, here. And, and so we see the three groups uh, uh, of God's people, the, the Jews prior to the new covenant. And, and then we see that there are the, uh, the believers that are comprised both of the Gentiles that have accepted Jesus Christ and also the Jews that have accepted Jesus Christ and so it is speaking of that time when the spirit is going to be poured out you will remember that in John's gospel chapter 4 that there was this Samaritan woman that was at the well and you will remember that Jesus invites her to and draw water and give it to him and and you will remember the exchange that she gives and, and says to him now how is it that you could give me water because Jesus said that the water that you're drinking you'll thirst again but the water that that I have to give this now will remove uh, your thirst in verse 3 it said for I will pour water on him who is thirsty. Je Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Here we see the connection to God in our salvation experience now. 
and fills us and doesn't just fill us with his spirit, but it fills us to overflowing in the same way that a, a spring bubbles up out of the ground and is this continuous source. So also as we put our trust, our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit <coughs> dwelling in us and not just uh, filling us, but this continual overflowing experience in our lives. Isaiah is looking forward to, to that promise and to these things that are, are listed here. We see in verse 6 now, <coughs> Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. We see here that that the Lord identifies uh, himself as the king of Israel, as the redeemer, and uh, as the eternal one. We see in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus declares that uh, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. And here we see that it says, and beside me there is uh, no God. We see the deity of Christ here in these uh, verses and and so verse 8 do not fear nor be afraid have i not told you from that time and declared it you are my witnesses is there a god beside me indeed there is no other rock i know not one and once again what is jehovah saying what is god saying here he is declaring that he is the eternal God. There is one God. There are not many gods. There is one God. And he is declaring that I am the sovereign over the entire universe. He tells the nation, don't be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and, and declared it? Have I not shown you? prophetically the things that would come to pass and and i am declaring the future and the hope that that you have he is telling them that his word is sure and the things that he declares will come to pass there is no other rock the rock of salvation what does that speak about jesus talked about the person that builds his house on the rock and the person that builds his house on the sand. The house is your life. And the person that builds their life upon this solid rock, the foundation is set onto bedrock. And, <coughs> and when the storms and the wind and, and all come, the, that house stands. But when a life, when a house is built on sand, when the storms come, then, then that sand shifts and the foundation fails and, and the whole house crumbles and great will be the destruction of that house. What are you building your life on? 
What is the foundation of your life? What is the bedrock of truth that you are putting your trust in? Here we see that God declares that there is no other rock beside himself. Jesus is the chief and cornerstone. He is the rock upon which we build our life. And he says, is there a, another rock? Is there truth other than me? And God says, I know not one. He's going to contrast now those who put their faith in God with those who put their faith in idols, in idolatry, worshiping things that are not God. And so here we see that, that he is reasoning. Come, let us reason together. God is reasoning with us about idols and false gods. People can worship sincerely, but just because they are sincere in their worship doesn't mean that what they're worshiping is true. And so God is going to reason with us. What is your God? Where is the truth in your life? How do you know what is true? And in this day, there were all of these false pagan gods that people were carving and bowing down to and they would have their little altars and and, and so they would be worshiping all of these Canaanite gods and and here we see that that God is saying you're you're bowing down to these little figures that have no substantiation behind them there there is no God behind uh, what you are worshiping and though you do it sincerely you are sincerely in error. And so it is important for us to understand who God is and to worship the true and the living God and not spend time in superstition and, and being derailed from things that are not true. Jesus would declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except to, and through me and he establishes the word of God establishes in truth and then prophecy declares is the revelation that he is who he says that he is he says there's no other God and then he says I'll prove it to you I will tell you what's going to happen in the future before it happens so that when it happens you know that I am who I say that I am and who does he say he is he says that he's God and there is no other God and that's how you can have the absolute assurance that you are worshiping the true and the living God. Jesus said, I'm going to go into the grave. I'm going to conquer the grave. I'm going to come back up. I have the power over life and death. And that I am the removal of your sins. I am the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. And the only entrance into heaven is through me. How do we know that? How do we know that what Jesus said is true? Because he went into the grave just like he said he would and then three days later he picked his life back up again and then he appeared to all of the witnesses before he ascended into heaven. God isn't asking you to take it on blind faith. He tells you the truth and then he backs it up with undeniable signs 
so that your faith can have feet underneath it. God doesn't ask us to check our brain out and to just uh, worship, to, to empty ourselves uh, of everything and to enter into this state of nothingness, to be connected with him. It is an intimate, personal, intelligent relationship that is based upon God's interaction with his creation. He has told us, explained his creation to us and has explained that that we now are, are the crown of the earth as he placed mankind now to be loved and to love him in return. You are loved. You were created by God. You were intelligently designed and knitted together by God. And God wants you to, to know that he loves you and invites you into that deep abiding relationship. And, and the enemy wants to confuse. He wants to separate you from God. He wants you to doubt God. He wants you to disbelieve that God even exists. He wants to do every single thing that he can to hamper, hinder, and to destroy your relationship with God. How is your relationship doing? How successful has Satan been in your life at attacking your faith? your connection to God. Here we see that God is giving the evidence. He's setting down before us his credentials of who he is so that we can trust him wholeheartedly in our lives. Do you trust God wholeheartedly? Do you believe that the word of God is absolutely true? Do you believe that he is the author of the scriptures, that they are breathed by the Holy Spirit and, and that the word of God is that solid rock for us that we can build our lives upon? Or has the enemy attacked your faith and your ability to connect with that truth? Here, the voice of God is spoken through Isaiah as he talks about the fact that that if you worship, if you believe there is any other God other than the God that is revealed in the Bible, then you are in error and God wants to call you out of error and into truth. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. Who the Son sets free from error is going to be free to walk in the truth of who God is. And so God is going to talk about idolatry, about the futility of man making idols and then bowing down to them. And so in verse 9, those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. We see that idol worship does nothing for those who who practice it? Who would form a God, verse 10, or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with tongs works, one in the coals, fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms, and even so he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. He's saying, can a blacksmith make a god? Can a blacksmith make a god? He can hammer it, 
he he can form an image, but it's just an image. It, there there is nothing there. And the blacksmith himself, he's not a god. He grows faint if he doesn't drink water. He dehydrates and and he will die. And so can someone who is not a god make a god? And the craftsman, he says in verse 13, stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Here we see that Isaiah is declaring, God is speaking through the prophet, that the gods themselves have no life. They're, for they're made from metal or from trees. And the, the trees and the metal, God is the one that makes them. We plant the seed and then God brings the rain and waters them and, and, and nourishes them. These trees, he's speaking about verse 15, then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. And indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. <coughs> All from the same lock. Here we see that, that God is declaring, you take a, a tree, you cut it down. You chop up some of it for firewood. It keeps you warm. You use other of it to cook with it and to bake bread. And then you take other pieces of it and you make a God out of it. This is all from the, the same tree here. He burns half of it in the fire. Verse 16, with this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and it is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. And people who, who pray that, that, that a piece of carved wood would save them. Here we see that God shows them that is ignorance. John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They do not know, verse 18, nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? We see it tells us now in verse 20 that a deceived heart has turned him aside. Our feelings, our emotions, our heart, 
He tells us, don't navigate by that. We see that the heart, emotions, was given to us to enrich our relationships. The mind thinks, but the heart feels. But it is the spirit that is to navigate us. We are not to navigate our lives with just our intelligence. A person that navigates with just their intelligence and has no emotion whatsoever is robotic and mechanical, regardless of how successful and intellectual they, they may be. But at the same time, the Bible teaches us that, that we are not to navigate by our emotions. For our emotions, though they are powerful and passionate, they rise and fall. They come and they go. They, they are not stable. And so a person that is always making emotional decisions, you see how they lack stability in their life. They, they blow in and blow out of relationships. When, when a person's emotions lead them, we see that, that they will have tremendous difficulty in their life. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can navigate by it? We're not to navigate by just our heart. We're not to navigate by just our intellect. But we are to navigate by the leading of the Spirit in our life. We are to walk by faith and, and not by sight, not by our intellect, nor by our emotions. But we are to be led of the Spirit. And trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to not lean on our own understanding, but acknowledge God, letting God lead you and guide you into his perfect will for your life. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me for I have redeemed you. And so here we see that God is willing to forgive and to blot out our transgressions if we will come and repent and, and bring our sin and, and turn to him. You are never beyond the grace of God. You are not beyond the grace of God tonight. Wherever you are and, and wherever your life is, you may look at it and believe that, that you are beyond uh, God's love. And I want you to know that God promises that there is nobody who is beyond his love. We see here that he tells them, I will not forget you. You will not be cast off. In verse 23, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. The nation was to sing. In fact, all nature is personified and being asked to sing and to rejoice for God has a plan, 
And restoration and redemption is part of that plan. And I want you to know that restoration and redemption is a part of God's plan for your life and, and for my life. God is continuing to restore us back into the, the image that we were originally intended to be in. And he is continuing his refining work of that Holy Spirit in us, changing us and molding us into the image and likeness of Christ. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge <clears throat> foolishness. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And there are many people who, supposing to be wise, are nothing but fools. Verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry. And I will dry up your rivers. We see the fulfillment of prophecy establishes the credibility of God's word. In verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Here we see in verse 28 is one of the most amazing prophecies uh, in the, the scriptures. We see that God predicted in advance that a man named Cyrus would release the Jewish exiles. Now, the nation was going to go into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the instrument of God's judgment. He would bring them in and they would take them captive. You remember that he said that he will raise up the Babylonians and they will be his instrument of judgment. But then he says that he will judge the Babylonians for the destruction of the nation of Israel and for the destruction of the temple. And and here we see that as they are going into captivity, he tells them that Cyrus is going to be his instrument through whom he is now going to bring them back into the land. Now, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and his forces, they come and they destroy Jerusalem's walls. They burn the houses and the temple and they carried off the, the captives into uh, captivity. Cyrus is a Persian. He is a, an Iranian. We see that the Babylonians are the Iraqis. And we see the Iranians and the Iraqis here in, in these empires. 
the Iraqi empire is the Babylonian empire. And, and we see that Cyrus is from Persia, from Iran. And Cyrus rises up into power and the Medes were, were a local power. And we see that the, the Persians under the Cyrus, they, he takes and he conquers the Medes and, and now takes their forces and joins them together with his, becomes the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire underneath Cyrus the Great. We see that he also adds Lydia to that in these three nation these three empires now are joined together these three ribs in daniel's prophecy of the uh, of the various different empires we see the bear with the three ribs that are in it this is a, a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire and those three ribs are uh, are the three nations that form that that empire that Cyrus comes in and he comes against the Babylonians and you'll remember that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar and you'll remember how he was feasting there and, and Cyrus and the Medo-Persians were outside and you'll remember that there was the handwriting that was on the wall. Many, many tekel you farsum. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom is going to be taken from you. And you remember that it was that very night that now the, uh, the Medo-Persians come in and Cyrus now defeats and takes down the Babylonian Empire. And, and it was Cyrus who then issued the decree for the peoples to be able to return back to their, uh, their nations. The Jews were allowed to go back now underneath Cyrus and return and rebuild the temple. And, and here we see that hundreds of years before these events even take place, when Isaiah is writing this, Babylon is nothing yet. Assyria is the great threat. Assyria is the one that comes and surrounds them. Assyria is the one that has taken the ten northern tribes. And you remember that it was an angel that wiped out the, the Assyrians that had encamped around Jerusalem. And here we see in the, in the post-Assyrian period now is when Isaiah is writing about how not only is Babylon going to be the one that's going to take them into captivity, but also it is going to be the Medo-Persians and Cyrus the Great who is going to release them back into their land after 70 years uh, of being deported there in, in Babylon. Cyrus is referred to as he is my shepherd, referring that God is going to use him now to shepherd the, the people back uh, to their nation after their 70 years of captivity. In chapter 45, we see Cyrus is God's instrument. In verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. And I will go before you and make the crooked places straight and I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. We see that 
God is declaring that he is the power behind Cyrus as, as Cyrus is now going to be able to sweep through, but, but that God has his hand upon him because he is going to use Cyrus to send the people back now to Jerusalem after their 70 years of captivity. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And there is no God besides me, and I will gird you, though you have not known me. And so Cyrus is going to have this special relationship with God, even though he was not a believer. And you can imagine what it must have been like for Cyrus when after he captures Babylon, he finds out in the scriptures here that God had named him almost 200 years earlier by name as his chosen instrument to release his people back. And so, in verse 8, verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. I want you to know that righteousness exalts a nation, that God is the one that raises kings up and brings kings down. He raises governments up and he brings governments down. That there is no other God besides the true and the living God. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, uh, have created it. We see that in the millennial kingdom when it is established on earth, the, the heavens, figuratively speaking, are just going to rain down righteousness. And verse 9 is a great warning. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Woe to that person who fights against their creator, the one who made them, fashioned them. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands you command me. I have made the earth, and created man on it. You were created by God. You were loved, knitted together in your mother's womb. You were placed here for purpose. Your life has a purpose. 
And the first purpose is to be connected to the God that created you, to know the God who is extending his arm for you to know who he is. And as you experience him and as you experience his goodness and his grace and his love and his mercy, that, that you would tell others about your experience with the true and the living God. That is bringing glory to God. That is how we bring glory to God. And the chief aim of man is to bring glory to God for you to tell other people about your experience with the true and the living God. I have made the earth and created man on it. I think of how many people are so deceived by Satan to believe in, in evolution, to believe that, that there was just suddenly this great explosion of matter and, and from this we now have the mankind today. And how it is that when asked, where did that matter come from? Who created that matter that, that blew apart into the, the, the solar systems and the stars that we have? There is no answer. And yet, they refuse to believe that God is the one that created them. Satan has blinded their mind that they cannot and will not come into a relationship with God as God stretches his, his hands out. And nature itself, creation itself, demands the answer, where did all of this come from? Where did all of this come from? A man cuts down a tree and makes an idol and worships the idol, and, and God says, who made the tree that you're worshiping? Who made the earth? Who made you that breathed life into you? And so we see God's desire to reconcile mankind back unto himself. I have made the earth and created man on it. You were created. You are not an accident. He says, I... My hands stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, Jerusalem. The decree was given Cyrus to return back now and to build in Jerusalem, the temple. And let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. He his plans to raise Cyrus up and, and Cyrus's task again is stated to allow the freed exiles to go back and to rebuild God's city, Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other God. There is no other God. We see that there is going to come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Truly you are God, who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together, who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. And you shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. So interesting that after the Romans destroy the nation of Israel and, and there it sat, destroyed for, for almost 2,000 years. And we see here is the promise that, that there is an everlasting salvation for the nation of Israel and that you are not going to be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. And yet there was no longer any nation and they had been disgraced and the burning and the destruction, the sacking of their nation, the destruction by the Romans. And yet God says, no, I have a purpose and a plan for you. We see the first time they were brought into captivity and they were dispersed was into Babylon and he brings them back. But, but then they are once again, as Jesus said, that every stone is going to be destroyed and it is going to be burned. And, and we see the destruction that he was weeping over as he is making his triumphal entry into the, the city itself. Oh, how I had desired, like a mother hen brings her chicks under her arms to protect you, but you would not. And yet we see that God says that I have a plan and purpose for the nation of Israel, and, and it will stand forever and ever. And there for 2,000 years, there, there was no Israel until May of 1948. Ezekiel's prophecy, the regathering together, the dry bones prophecy, will you be gathered together from the four corners of the earth and brought back to my land again, and I will knit you together and stitch you back together. For God has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel. And we see that purpose and plan unfolding. We see that the events are ripe now for the return of Jesus Christ to establish his rule and reign in righteousness. And, and what exciting times we are uh, living in. God is not done with the nation of Israel. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. We see that in captivity, the Jews could count on the fact they could count on the fact that the Lord was going to deliver them from exile by Cyrus. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot see. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. 
We see over and over again, God says, this is what I am going to do, and there is no other God beside me. There will be gods of all the different nations. They are false gods. They are just simply idols. I raise up nations and I take them down. I'm going to bring my people into captivity, not through the Assyrians, but through the Babylonians, but I will bring judgment on them by the Medo-Persians, and I will name the commander Cyrus who is going to send my people back and send them back to rebuild my temple. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Are you hearing a theme here in these chapters? Do you hear the heart of God? As he sees the futility of people that have believed the lie of the enemy that bow down to all sorts of false gods, all types of superstitions, believing in, hoping in, trusting in things that just simply are not true. And just because you believe something sincerely does not make it true. God is declaring, I am the true and the living God, and there is no other God beside me I have sworn verse 23 by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow every tongue shall take an oath and he shall say surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength to him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him in the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Israel is God's covenant people. And they will be justified. They will be found righteous in the Lord. And in that, they will rejoice. Trust in the Lord. He has a great plan for your life. And though things may be difficult right now, and there may be hardships, know that hardships do not mean that, that you are cast off, that God is angry with you, or that he has forgotten you. God promises that even in the difficulty and the uncertainty of hardships, that he will be in the fire with you. Jesus declared that he will never leave us or forsake us. He has sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter that will lead us and guide us and aid us, minister to us. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Trust God. Get to know the true and the living in God. Press deeper in intimacy and communion and fellowship with the, your maker and experience his goodness his grace, and his love. And tell everybody about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I ask that you would just continue to lead us and guide us, uh, Lord, step by step. We ask that you would minister to all those that are enduring such hardship and such affliction right now. 
that they would seek comfort and solace in you, that they would put their trust in you. Father, would you bless us, minister to us, help us, and it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.